Morning. So guys, today I thought what we'd do is look at some really practical ways you can leave here walking in intimacy with God. And so we're just going to look at that in several different ways. I've got some really, I think, fun film clips to show you that will drive home the points in some unique ways. So I'm calling this section in part four the shift to with. And I just want to start with a couple of things Jesus said because I love the way he taught. I love the way he connected with people. And what he says in Matthew 13 is, that's why I tell stories, to create readiness, to nudge people toward receptive insight. And that's really what we're doing here with the movie clips and the stories. And what I tried to do with the story of With, the book I wrote, like the whole goal is just to stir something in you, a longing in you, a desire, that moment where you go, yeah, I am going to pursue that dream. I am going to step into that. That's what all the stories here, and that's what all the clips are for. He also says in Matthew, I will open my mouth and tell stories. I will bring out into the open things hidden since the world's first day. God is creator. When he brought the universe into existence, and it says in the Bible he did that through and in Jesus, he did that in a way where he has all these hidden Easter eggs for us to discover if we will go on the search with him. He doesn't just give it to us, but he brings out through story some of these things that have been hidden since the world's first day. In other words, we find out new facts, but they're not new. They're things God has put as the Ancient of Days into creation. He's baked it into our world, and now we get to discover it with him. So there's going to be several categories we just run through today on how to shift to with in your life. The first category is with God and with others. And I'm going to show you um, a film clip, and then we'll go into this. But watch, especially in the middle of this trailer. I'm not even going to set it up for you, but watch in the trailer in the middle. There's one section where Tom Cruise, I usually don't bring Tom Cruise into my presentations, but he does a great job of describing how we can pursue life with God or without God. Okay. I love the scene in the movie and in that trailer in particular where he's like, with me, without me. And that's really what God's offer is. You can do life with me or without me. With me, your chances are about here. Without me, they're down here. And if you notice in that movie, the theme of it is people are trying to kill her. She's unaware of it. He comes in and says, you've got an enemy. People are trying to kill you. They're going to tell you you're safe. They're going to tell you you can have a safe life. You're good. But they're actually out to kill you. We have an enemy who's out to kill, still and destroy us. And with God, we can maneuver about here. Without God, on our own strength, on our own intelligence, on our own make it happen, we're down here. So... It's just a fun way to look at that. I want to show you another way to look at that through a grid. So if you want to put this on your maybe notebook, there'll be four quadrants. And it's just a simple way to break this down, what we've been talking about, okay? So when you think about life, the bottom quadrant is the one you don't want to be in for sure, okay? Without God, 
and without others. That would be, in our language, a total orphan, meaning you don't really rely on God. You don't really go at his pace or wait for him to give you the answers. And you really don't do life very well with others. This would be the extreme introverted person who basically doesn't feel like they need people or God. They're kind of the self-made man or woman. The second one gets a little better. It's without God, but it's with others. And there's partial identity because we're made for God and others. God says the greatest commandment is, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit, and love others. So that's getting one of the two. And we see this in a lot of communities where there's rich community life between families and there's rich fellowship, but there's not a lot of talk about God and there's not a lot of depth about God in it. It's just more family to family, couple to couple, and it's only partial because we're made for God first. Well, we're still in the partial in that top row but it's with God and without others. And the example of that would be like when I've told you that I was a Sunday school teacher, I think, uh, some of you have told, at the largest church in Dallas when I was growing up, and it was a great place to be. I was teaching the Word of God, but as soon as the lesson was over, I tried to head out the back door. Like, I didn't want to engage with the people in the class because it was messy. Their lives were messy. They wanted to talk about their marriage, about their finances, about their kids, and I just kind of wanted to talk about the lesson about God, and then I wanted to go out the back door before the class ended, and a lot of pastors are this way. They pastor a church, and they teach, but they hire a whole staff to talk to the people, you know, so you can do life with God, but without others, and that's not good either, because we weren't made for that. We weren't just made for life to be us and God. And the total freedom, the freedom realm, is with God and with others. And you want to just see, hopefully, this grid is kind of a checkpoint of which of those areas are you in? Because I doubt you're in that without God, without others, hardly at all, if at all. But you may find yourself in the, the two middle ones some. And the goal is to get into the top right one as much as you can, where you're with God and here's the thing, the more time that you spend with God and walk with God, the more you will be able to love others well. And the more you love others well, the more you're actually loving yourself really well. So that's the order is love God, do life with him, step into life with others in that way, and then your own heart's going to be taken care of pretty well. The second category is with heart. Now, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. There's so many challenging and interesting thoughts in that one sentence. Above all else, above your job, above your kids, above your marriage, above your extended family, above anything in your life. Nurture your heart. Guard your heart. Take care of your heart. Most of the time, most days, we don't even think about our heart. 
And yet God says it's the number one thing. Above every single thing, do it. Not guard your heart because it's going to get you in trouble. Not guard your heart like put it in a, a barbed wire fence. Guard your heart. Nurture your heart because why? It is the wellspring of life. Your heart will go dry and numb if you don't take care of your heart. So above everything else. This is a sign in Colorado that we see a lot. It basically is out where there's a lot of trees in the mountains. Do you have defensible space? Because if you don't, when things get dry and a fire begins, it can jump from the tree to the roof in about one second. So the question is, you know, do you have tree space? Do you have defensible space where there's not a chance your home will catch fire because of too many trees right around them? But I want to ask you that same question about your heart. Do you have defensible space around your heart? If you don't, the smallest thing can spark your heart into fury. You're driving down the interstate and a car cuts in front of you, like way too close, recklessly, and you're ready, if you had it, to pull a machine gun out and take that driver out. Somebody says something to you and you're ready to engage in an argument or a fight or you're offended or you're angry or you're whatever, that showing your heart does not have defensible space. It's like tinder ready to just snap or, or catch flame at any moment. So if you want to know the condition of your heart, look at how you respond to certain people in certain situations where you feel this rage coming up in you, you feel this anger, you feel um, just offense. And the question is, how do you nurture your heart? What do you specifically do? Write that in your journal. What do you do to take care of your heart above all else every day? If you don't know, great, that's great. Like in terms of like, it's a great thing to bring to God. Ask him. What is it that makes your heart come alive? And make sure whatever it is, is that it's not a productivity-driven thing. Like cleaning your house may be efficient and it may be needed and it may be good, but that's not what I'm talking about in making your heart come alive. Or cleaning the garage out. You know, like what is it that's not productive-based but that is just for your heart? few years ago, I had a couple of days off work, and Kelly knew I had been running really hard, doing a lot of stuff. I was, I was burnt out, and she said, I want you to spend the day just taking care of your heart. Only do things today for your heart. I've got the family. I'm good. We're good. And I was so burnt out, I had no idea what to do. Like, I, I was like, I don't, I don't even know what that means right now. Like, I'm so, my heart is so untended for, I don't even know where to begin to take care of my heart. And so oftentimes, when we feel that way, we'll look for relief instead of restoration. So, I don't know how to care for my heart, but I'll just get busy. I'll just answer more email. I'll just have another drink at home tonight, because that takes the edge off. I'll just check out. I'll just veg on you know, uh, a Netflix series for 12 hours. 
that's not taking really care of your heart. That's kind of checking out sometimes. So the question is, what do you do to restore your heart? And if this is a question that you're not wanting to engage in, you're the one that needs to engage in it most. So if you're sitting here and you're going, yeah, 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 you're the one who needs to really answer that question. At some point, what are you doing for your heart? Because your family needs that. Your spouse needs that if you're married. And God says, above all else, we need that. Now, part of our heart gets taken out because we have an enemy. And James 4, 7 says, we need to hold firm to God. In other words, we need to do life with God intimately, actively, and resist the enemy, and then he will flee. And we talked a little about this last night, but I just want to reinforce if you're not actively resisting the enemy and you have strongholds in your life, you're going to be living with those strongholds a long, long, long time. And unfortunately, strongholds work through generations. So your kids are going to experience that for a long, long time. And you may be experiencing them because your parents did. So the way out of that is to resist the enemy as you hold, hold to God. Don't do it in your own strength. In the strength of God, resist the enemy. That means saying, no, no longer will this be in our family line. No longer will I struggle with this. No longer will I do this. I'm casting the enemy out of this. And it says, then the enemy will flee. But no resist, no flee. No engagement, no change. That's, that's what scripture says. So part of taking care of your heart and your family's heart is taking warfare seriously. Here's another category. With your work, what you do, your creativity, your talent, your dreams, how do you pursue that and shift to with in that? I'm going to show you here a film clip from the movie called August Rush. How many of you have seen this movie? Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a great movie of a child prodigy in music. He hears music. He comes alive with music. His parents were both very talented musicians. Um, they had a night together. He was born. They don't get married. They go their separate ways. And he ends up kind of on the street. And he's this young boy who loves music, doesn't really know his identity. And his father's a, a guitar player, and this boy plays the guitar. And so the scene you're about to see is the boy is out basically taking money on the street with his guitar. He's playing songs for people. And the father comes up. And in this scene, the father doesn't know that's his son. And the son doesn't know that's his father. They're just drawn to each other. So watch what happens. But what I really want you to see in this scene, it has very few words. I want you to watch in this scene how they co-create together. It's not what just the boy's doing, and it's not what the father's doing. But together, they enter into their creativity, their passion, their gifting together as a father and a son. And so think about that in a mythic way as you're watching this clip. Yo! Yo! 
I'm his representation. That's why I'm making the deal. Come on. No, there's no parents. Great sounds, kid. Gibson J200. It's beautiful. Can I see her? Hey. It's okay. I'm a musician too. See what you can do with mine. in that scene, but a powerful look at what it's like to step into what you love with God. Notice, you know, at first the boy was hesitant and a little bit standoffish. He didn't know who this was. But then the father gives the son the better guitar. He switches. He gives him his guitar. And even though he kind of starts to lead Soon, you can't tell who's in the lead. 
they're just co-creating, they're playing, they're, they're making music together. And again, mythic, okay? I'm not saying you're a guitar player, and I'm not saying God's going to walk up with a guitar and sit down with you and start playing a duet. What I'm saying is, that is a picture, just like the parables of Jesus are pictures, of what you can do when you step into life with God. So when you're at your day job, when you're writing, when you're creating, when you're pursuing your talent, it should feel like this. Are you in the lead or is God in the lead? Well, you're both, you're both together. Sometimes God will lead you a certain way and you'll run. Sometimes he'll give you a note or a thought and you'll follow that. But that's co-creating. That's stepping into what you love with God. And that's just a really good picture, I think, of what I mean by that and what it looks like. Is it going at your pace or God's pace? Yes, together. Sometimes God will have you lead, sometimes he'll lead, and sometimes you'll go side by side. How do you know? You watch him, you ask him. It's active. What, what we're inviting you into here is what you love to do your job, it may not be your, maybe you don't love your job, maybe you like your job, maybe you need your job, but with what you do, how do you pursue it with God, even if it's not the dream job, the main thing, and then how do you pursue the things you do love with God, both of those are valid, so you can be in a job that is just paying the bills, and you still walk into that as a daughter of God, or a son of God, you change the atmosphere there by your presence, and by what you do, but that's okay that that's not your dream, but you still need to have those dreams you're pursuing with him that's outside of anything that pays the bills, if that's the way it works. Sometimes, sometimes you get the job that's your dream job, and you get to do that, live that with God. So it just depends, but don't find yourself in a position where you're at work and you're going, this isn't it, I'm just trying to kind of survive, and I'm having to put all my dreams on hold. Because in that situation, you're really, that's where your heart will start to go numb. That's where there's really nothing greater that you're entering into with God. The next section, uh, just to touch on, is with a hunger for more. Everything we've talked about today and yesterday and this weekend, if you don't have a hunger for more and approach it, as one of the most important things in your life, it will just fall by the wayside. So what are some ways to keep it? Well, one is just on a daily, regular basis, ask yourself, which realm am I operating from? Am I operating more today in this moment in the car with the kids when they're all yelling and screaming, when things are tense at home, when things are tense at work? Am I more in the freedom realm or am I operating more out of an orphan mindset? Just use that terminology. Keep that handy. If you're talking to your spouse, just go, wow, I think, I think we're kind of looking at this like orphans. Why don't we stop and ask God what to do? Why don't we step into this situation differently? <laughs> Here's an orphan realm sign I just wanted to show you. I was at the gym with my son for a basketball game, and this is the sign on the entry to a gym, a place of play. Four questions. What are you doing? What are you supposed to be doing? Are you doing that? What are you going to do and when are you going to start? Boy, that's an invitation into joy 
and playfulness right there. Like, <laughs> and for the, for the person who seems to me like a little bit of a jerk probably who wrote this, um, there's not even four questions, there's five. Like, <laughs> like, get it right. At least get it right if you're going to be a jerk. Like, there's a fifth question down there. But notice in that sign how many times the word do or doing is used. Every question pretty much has that implication of you are what you do, you're probably doing something wrong, when are you going to start doing it right? Sometimes that's how we hear the voice of God. If we're worried about if we're in God's will, it can kind of feel like this sometimes. That God's asking those questions. What are you supposed to be doing? Are you doing it? That's not God's voice. That is an orphan, worldly, fleshly way to see things is everything's value is in what's done and it better be done right. So when you catch yourself in that or see that, just go, man, that's like when I saw that, I was like, orphan sign, big time. Like that's just the, that's just the way you can identify things in your life and around you. Another thing to practice Learn to hear God's voice. If you've never felt internally you've heard the voice of God, it's available to you. You can. It's not certain people. It's not weird. It's the way God showed life in Scripture. And a great book, if you are interested in reading it, is a book called Walking with God by John Eldridge. It's on audio. It's an e-book. It's a paperback book you can get. But he takes you through a year of his life in his journal of how he learned to hear the voice of God and walk with God. Another great book is Dallas Willard's book. He's got one called uh, Hearing God. There's another one that Mark Batterson just wrote. And I forget the name of that one. But if you just look up Mark Batterson, his current book is on hearing the voice of God. Whisper? Whisper. Okay. Those are three options. There's another book called Frequency that's on hearing the voice of God. I forget who that author is. Those are four different ones. But the point is, do you want to? I was at a conference a few months ago, and a lady came up to me and said, I guess I just need to leave the conference. She was pretty challenging. She just kind of came around the corner, and it was a break. And she's right in my face, and she's like, I just need to leave the conference, I guess, because I know I can't hear the voice of God. So I guess there's no place for me here. And I was like, actually, I want you on the front row next session. And I said, but here's my question to you. You're invited here. You're welcome here. But my question is, do you want to hear the voice of God? If you could, do you want to? Because if you don't, you never will. But if you pursue it and want it, God speaks. And, and it's hard to walk with him if you don't hear his voice. So if you want that, those are four good resources. That's why I did, gave you the journal, was just to show you what listening could do. And, and you, can, you can give your son or daughter a journal and listen for them. You can do that with a coworker. You can do that in your next journal for yourself, for your spouse. It's a really cool thing to listen for yourself and others. Regularly ask God what he's up to, meaning... God, what is your interpretation of what's going on? It feels to me like the bottom is falling out. 
It feels to me like uh, we've entered into a terrible season. It feels to me hopeless. I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill without this money. My kids and I don't have a great relationship. Whatever it is, it's great to pause and go, God, what, are, what is going on? But not just ask the question, but listen to what he says. Like, what is your interpretation of this? How many times with young kids do they have an interpretation of things that we go, it totally makes sense if you're six, you would see it this way. But from an adult standpoint, we know that's not what's really going on. Well, how many times does God say that to us? Like, you're just so close, you can't see what's really going on. Ask me for my interpretation. Let that be how you define this story, not your interpretation. This is a huge one. Lose your expectations. A big way to walk with God is to say, no longer do I have the list that you need to make happen. No longer do these things have to happen for me to either have joy or to be present or to say yes. All expectations off the table. Now, I have an expectancy, God, for what you're going to do. Expectancy and expectations, opposite words. I have an expectancy every day that you're going to come through, but you have my permission to come through however you want to. If things aren't going well and you say, move to Alaska, okay, okay. If you say, no, you're staying here for the next 10 years, but you're not going to be in the same job, okay. If you, you know, it's not, well, I'm not going to move because I'd move away from my extended family, so I can't do that, and I'm not going to do this because of this, and I, and I really am not going to do that. At that point, you are so rigid in your expectations, you're probably not going to hear God. Because God doesn't play by our rules. God doesn't say, okay, well, tell me the things you won't do, and then I'll work with you from there. God says, you either give me your yes, or we, we don't continue. But God will not negotiate with us. And so we have to lose our expectations, or, or even, God, if I follow you, I'll, I'll do this, but... I expect my family life to be perfect. I expect my health to be perfect. I expect this, this, and this. Those are expectations too. So you can't go with God with a list of demands. You have to just say like Chase, my younger son, said when I pulled the truck up, I'm in. Not I'm in if or I'm in but, I'm in. Like, let's do it. Let's go. And that really gets to trusting God's heart. He has a good heart for you. This is a powerful one, too. How many of you in some area of your life right now feel like there's scarcity? There's not enough of something. It may be time. It may be money. It may be joy. It may be hope. It may be um, space in your house, whatever it is. But how many of you feel like you've got some level of scarcity right now? Whoever's not raising your hand, I'm going to have you come up and tell us what it's like for full abundance in every area. How many of you have scarcity somewhere in your Okay, okay. So proclaiming abundance means this. It's just as simple as saying, God, I know you're a God of abundance. You have never run short on time, money, anything. You have an abundance of everything. I'm your son or daughter. I proclaim abundance. Your abundance into my kingdom, my household, my realm, I proclaim your abundance. 
Don't know what that's going to look like. Don't know how you're going to do that. But I proclaim it because you are not a God of scarcity. It's that simple. Then does something magical happen in one minute? No. But you're speaking life. Your words matter. What you say matters. If you don't believe that, say something critical to your four-year-old or five-year-old and watch, their, watch them walk out of the room, kind of shoulders slumped, frown, tears. Our words affect the atmosphere. When you proclaim that, you're announcing to the atmosphere in the face of the world and the enemy and who, in the spiritual and a physical realm, no. We live in abundance with God. It changes the atmosphere. It's a great practice to do, and it changes your heart, too. Psalm 66, 12 says this. We went through fire and through water, but you have brought us out to the place of abundance. God will bring you to abundance. Not the worldly standard of abundance, but abundance of everything that matters. And then remember, God isn't bound by any past formulas. By that I mean the way God came for, through for you last time is probably almost certainly not going to be the way he comes through for you the next time. God is not a God of formulas. Look in the Bible of how many different ways Jesus engaged with people who were hurt, bleeding, sick, stubborn, pompous. Like sometimes it was tenderness. Sometimes it was get up. Sometimes it was no, sometimes it was come with me. It was always, look how God in the Old Testament would take, he'd take an army into battle and every time he'd tell them a different way to fight the enemy. We tend to look for formulas. Oh, I get it. God got me out of this thing this way last time, so I'm in the same situation. Come on, God, let's do it again. And usually God says, no, we're not doing it that way this time. What do you mean we're not doing it that way this time? Well, I mean, follow me into the new way because I'm going to show you something new this time. So in your relationship with God, remember, it's not going to probably look like how it looks for your neighbor or for your best friend or for how it was for you. And that's good because God says instead of a map or a formula, I give you me. Now let's do it together. Here's another category, success. What is your definition of success? Please write this down in your journal to go over later. When you leave this gathering and somebody who wasn't here said, hey, you were going this weekend to Family Fest. How was it? You'll base your answer on some preconceived, if this happens, a success. If this didn't, it's not successful. What is your definition of success? Not for this conference, but for life. What is your definition of, in this season of my life, success looks like this? When you say, I'm having a bad day, you're having a bad day based on your definition of what a good day should be. Somebody else may be in that day and say, I think it's a pretty awesome day. The difference is your definition of success for the day, for your life, for your marriage. So what is your definition of success? And what if success doesn't happen according to your expectations? What happens then? See, the great thing about what I'm talking to you this weekend on is this. I can give you a definition that's guaranteed success, and I will in a minute. But not only what if your day doesn't go well, what if success 
for all of what you're sowing into your children and all of what you're sowing into this community and all of your faith, what if success you never see in your life at all? What if the success that happens comes 100 years from now? The fruit of it, the seeds of it grow 100 years from now. Your whole life, you're faithful. Your whole life, you're doing the best you can and see no fruit. Then what is success? Let me show you this film clip from a TV show called Doctor Who. And I'm going to let it be self-explanatory, but does everybody know the concept of Doctor Who? Guy in a uh, British TV show, guy in a phone booth. It basically travels through time in this, like, blue phone booth and has all these adventures. But he can bring people from the past into the present. They can go to other times. And in this case, they're bringing somebody into the present from over 100 years in the past. And in his lifetime, he was a painter. You'll see more about this. In his lifetime, he was a painter, and he never sold one painting except to his brother out of pity. His whole life. Painter, nobody wanted his work, nobody cared. He died, and that was the end of what he knew of his story. But watch what happens later through this scene. Where are we? Paris. 2010 AD, and this is the mighty Musée d'Orsay, home to many of the greatest paintings in history. Now, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, ignore that. I've got something more important to show you. Take all your chances while you can. Never know when they'll pass you. Like me, trying my hardest to explain. Glad to be of help. You were nice about my tie. Yes. And today is another cracker, if I may say so. But I just wondered, between you and me, in a uh, hundred words, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? Well, um, big question. Um, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular, great painter of all time. The most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, that strange, wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also 
one of the greatest men who ever lived. Vincent. Sorry. I'm sorry, is it too much? No. They are tears of joy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Sorry about the beard. <laughs> Awesome scene. I invite you to be the strange, wild man or woman now with God that a hundred years from now, you're confident what you're doing matters. Success is really not what you see before you now. <coughs> Success is really how you pursue what you do rather than the outcomes. See, if you think that's the right definition, that changes everything because then what you're doing, you experience success while you're doing it, not based on what other people say. And true success is just this. It's creating, pursuing, living your dreams with God. It's in the process. If you do that, success is simply with. Are you doing your life with God? If you're not, I would say you're not successfully living the right, I mean, you're missing the main thing. If you are, regardless of what the world says, you're successful. Now, I'm going to show you one final picture that's a, it's a super short video, but let me just set it up, and this is what we're going to end on, and I'm going to leave you with. I want to show you a picture of a father that I think is the best representation of God. The Cheerios commercial we saw showed all these different aspects of a, a dad, right? And it was beautiful. This is a little different. This is a true video. This is not a commercial. It's based on the life of an athlete named Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond is a British athlete. In 1988, he was in the Seoul Olympics. And in the middle of that training, he thought he would win it all. His dad is his coach, very tough, big guy, and also a loving dad. And his dad was a coach. And during the middle of the Seoul Olympics, his Achilles tendon pops. He's out. He has over 12 surgeries, okay, between 8 and 12. Four years later, he's back in the Olympics. This time, he's ready to win it all. But he's had, he's had so many surgeries. He's had so much work. His dad's worked with him, rehabilitated him. And now he's back, okay? And he's back at Barcelona. But this time, the same thing happens midway through the race. I want you to watch this video. This is how we're going to end. I want you to watch it. And watch a couple of things. Watch the heartbreak of the son and watch the ferocious, beautiful love of the father. This isn't a high school track meet. He has to run through security guards. He has to run over, hop over fences. Watch how he pursues his son in tenderness and watch how anybody that tries to stop his son, watch how the ferociousness comes out. His dad, after that, was talking to interviewers, and his dad said, I'm actually more proud of him for finishing like he did than if he had won the whole race. See, that wasn't a plan B for the father. The father didn't have necessarily a plan A or B. His plan was, I'm with you. Yep, you have something that's broken, we'll do it together. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to come through. The father's not up in the stand saying, man, son, you blew it again. 
Like, I've spent eight years of my life on this thing. We've had eight surgeries, and you blew it again. Like, wow, that's not the father's voice. The father rushes through the crowd. And did you notice when the father, like to the son, it's this. To anybody that tries to get in the way or stop it, it's get out of here. Nobody's stopping me and my son. That's the type of father you have with God. Ferocious and tender. Loving and tender. He's with you every step of the way if you will accept it. If you will say, we're doing this together. He's ready and he wants that. That's the intimacy. That's the picture right there of what it's like to do it together, to run the race and finish the race together. That's the whole invitation of with God. I hope you will stay in your journal. I hope you will talk more about this to your spouse or a loved one, somebody, a friend. I hope you'll stay on this journey. You will experience the most amazing season of your life yet if you do. I promise you. My last seven years have been beyond anything I could have ever put together for myself in my best days. And that's the kind of life, that's what it's like. So let me close this in prayer, and then we'll kick off with what Pete has. Father, I just pray that these words, these stories, these images, these film clips resonate deeply. I pray everyone here feels your love for them as your beloved son, as your beloved daughter. We consecrate this time to you, this, this holy ground, and we ask you to surpass our wildest expectations for what it's like to live a life of sonship and daughterhood, intimately, actively with you. We give you our yes. In Jesus' name, amen.